You're listening to IBGR, our call sign for the Internet Business Growth Radio Network. The broadcast frequency is our URL, and that's IBGR.network. We provide live and recorded shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week, on what an entrepreneur or small business consultant needs to grow their operation from zero to big. How big? Up to you. IBGR focuses on the 180 million English-speaking small business owners around the world in four major markets, North America, Australia, Oceania, the Indian subcontinent, and United Kingdom, Europe, and Africa. All of these six-hour cycles are delivered in six major themes, strategy, operations, sales, people, ownership, and consulting. The first four tracks, strategy, operations, sales, and people, are the day-to-day tactical issues all entrepreneurs face. The fifth track, ownership, takes the conversation to the next level. How can an owner working in the business make the transition to an executive of a multi-million dollar firm by working on it? Our last track, consulting, is for our brothers and sisters with the same mission as IBGR, helping small business owners grow. I bet you didn't know that 57% of everybody on the planet is employed by a small business owner. Let's team up and help business owners increase generational wealth for themselves and their family while creating good jobs in their local community. Our team has over seven decades of helping and building businesses. We have turned those years of existence into radio shows and downloadable tools that any entrepreneur, whether you're an independent contractor, solopreneur, or business owner, can apply immediately. All you have to do is download, listen, apply, and engage. Download the show notes that address current issues in your business. Listen to the show live or as a podcast. Apply the information and tools. Engage us with your experience and feedback. And if you really want to maximize your time spent with IBGR, join our community and have access to our toolbox. This just scratches the surface of what you will receive every day at IBGR. The opportunity to grow with us is only limited by your imagination and persistence. Let's grow together and put the world back to work. Thanks for listening. Founders and executives across the country, you are listening to Catalytic Conversations with your host, Wendy Dickinson. This is the number one global business news and talk radio, IBGR Network, International Business Growth Radio. I'm Wendy Dickinson, and I'm your host for today's show, Catalytic Conversations. I'm your business growth expert, diving into the why, the what, and the how of your biggest business challenges. Did you happen to listen to any of the other IBGR shows this week? If you didn't, I encourage you to look up the shows on the podcast. You can pick a particular day. Mondays we do finance, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays your executive day. Choose a day, look for a topic that interests you and apply it to what's going on in your business today. These shows offer you, the owner executive, tools to hone your leadership skills as you grow your company. That's right. You can learn to be a leader. You can learn everything you need to know to run a successful company if you are willing to tap into the expertise of others. There's no need to come up with every answer yourself. That's what we're here for. I also want to invite you to join the IBGR Entrepreneurs Community Network located in the IBGR.app on IBGR.network or go directly to the IBGR.community. 
Once on the inside, you'll be in your community of commerce where you can connect with other entrepreneurs and interact with our on-air talent. Join the IBGR community where you can network with entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And come on, come grow with us. I also want to take this opportunity to encourage you to visit my website, AscendCoachingSolutions.com, to download the tools and tips for the growth of your business. Guys, if you can believe it, this is episode number 12 in season four of Catalytic Conversations here at IBGR. I encourage you to go to the IBGR website or the app and download the show notes. On the show notes, you can find ways to contact me, to contact my guests, to get a list of the steps we encourage you to take and the information we encourage you to gather. I know a lot of you plan to sell your business one day, and I'm glad for you. That's an awesome goal. But before you take that step, you're going to need to build a business that has value to a prospective buyer. The biggest takeaway for today's show is you can be the biggest obstacle to closing that sale. The points during the deal where you as the owner can get in your own way are numerous. But for today, I want to put a pin in choosing the right buyer and building that relationship. Now, I'm sorry to say that the odds of successfully choosing a buyer for your business are against you. And a lot of those odds come from how you go about it. Did you know that there are ways to stack the odds of selling successfully in your favor? The knowledge and experience that our guest expert will share with you today will help you tip those odds in your favor. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Wendy. I am Good to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Listeners, today we are going to take a look at some of the trickiest points in the process of selling your business. If you remember from our last time together, Selling a business is called the deal or the transaction. Now picture this. You've worked years to build your business. All that blood, sweat, tears, and you've built this dream of retiring in the next five or six years. And you're going to use that money from the sale of your business to buy your family uh, a relaxing cruise. Boy, wouldn't we all like to be on a cruise right now? Invest for your your retirement, and finally, do what you want to do with your time. You would be totally able to do whatever you felt like doing. Sounds great, doesn't it? And unfortunately, for many of you who hold that dream dear, it doesn't work out that way. It happens for a lot of reasons. And sometimes, it's the market conditions aren't right. But a lot of times, guys, it's the owners who get in their own way. So today, you have a chance to get the insider view of the transaction at the point of choosing that best fit buyer. Dan, who's a broker and strategy consultant with Filament Business Advisors, has a background in the restaurant industry. Dan is a former chef and restaurant owner. Dan has his finger on the pulse of the restaurant industry. And as a consultant and broker for Filament, Dan is going to discuss with me the unique aspects of selling a restaurant, asymmetrical buyers, and how the past year has laid the industry bare structurally. Listeners, this inside knowledge of the restaurant industry is so hard to come by. I know very few brokers who know, understand, and will represent restaurant owners. So 
Let's make the most of it and get a sense of how a buyer is chosen. Dan, please share with our listeners a bit about yourself and how you came to be a broker and an expert in the restaurant industry. Sure. Um, well, you won't find any brokers, I think, who, who started out life as a broker fresh out of college. Um, <laughs> I think the most successful brokers, at least I'm told, uh, are former business owners themselves because we speak the language. We know where bodies are buried. Uh, we, we've been through it all ourselves, so we can communicate with you and ask you all the right questions. That's kind of the key. And when we're selling a business, a privately held business, there's a lot of questions to ask. And then there's a lot of things to fix in most cases. So most owners, uh, well, let me talk about the restaurant side first. So I was, I, I after college, uh, where I was a philosophy major, econ minor, and not otherwise employable, I moved to Italy and worked there for two years and uh, started cooking and got into it. Obviously, the food in Italy is fairly good. Uh, and decided that that's, I really liked food, I really liked restaurants, I wanted to be a chef. So I figured, you know, well, really I wanted to be a food writer, but I thought the chefs had more integrity than you know former sports page writers. So I moved to San Francisco and, and uh, continued working in the industry, went to culinary school, and worked my way up the ladder fairly quickly. Um, I wound up as a, a chef uh, and multi-unit operator and owner of a 200-seat fine dining Italian restaurant in the financial district, uh, which is still there, and uh, two cafes called Paninotecas. Um, cafes did a million and a half a year in uh, sandwiches, soups, and salads. Wow. And the restaurant did around three million a year uh, in business lunch and happy hour, and then you know, some dinner and private dining and whatnot, but financial district. So um, it was a fairly decent-sized you know, restaurant company. Uh, and I, I first was hired as the hired gun and then became a minority partner, then bought out the, the founder uh, in a leveraged buyout in 2006, um, became very involved in the restaurant and also the industry because, of course, in San Francisco, so you're kind of fighting communism at every step of the way. Uh, I wound up as the president of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association, so I spent uh, a lot of time at City Hall or talking to journalists about you know any number of kind of anti-business things that were coming our way from city hall and just trends in the industry and whatnot you know i helped rebrand the the association and make it uh more kind of user-friendly more politician friendly kind of took our lobbying efforts in-house uh and, and a bunch of other things but and at the same time i was also and all operating in restaurants so i was also doing consulting for multinational food companies on menu development, recipe development stuff, because those companies are, are good at, at distribution and marketing and production, but terrible at R&D. So I did that until 2012 when I decided to sell my restaurants. Mm. I had kids. I had found the buyer years before and brought him on as a manager and um, promoted him and made him an offer he couldn't refuse sold to him and then I went off to teach entrepreneurship at an inner city high school for five years before moving here to Richmond where I have now wound up um, continued consulting but wound up doing consulting and brokerage and we do a fair amount of restaurant work oh wow that is such extensive experience and I'm so interested to hear some of the other things that we're going to be able to talk about today because of that experience listeners Dan and I want you to know what you don't know 
And what you don't know can definitely hurt your deal. Dan and I are going to share our recommendation for steps that you can take to choose the right buyer and then integrate successfully once it's sold. And I think you're going to want to take notes. Dan, just on a high note, what are the two or three or four different kinds of buyers that there actually are? Well, you have what people would call a financial buyer. And that's so the trick if you're a seller is to actually put yourself in buyer's shoes and not think of it from your perspective. So a financial buyer is someone who's looking at the restaurant as, a, as an investment, as a business, and that they would be able to pay off their initial investment in and make money on within the, the term of the lease, assuming there's a lease. Um, but that's normal in restaurants these days. Mm. And they, the business has to make sense to them on those terms. So if it's, if it's income does not, gen, it does not pay for the lease and what they paid for it in that time period, then it's not going to work. Um, then there's a strategic buyer. A strategic buyer is somebody who's typically five to 20 times bigger than you are, and it's another company, not a clone of yourself, but another company who sees your business as having a good protected niche, a good neighborhood, or, or a good opportunity to grow their own business. And to that buyer, it's probably worth more uh, than to the financial buyer because your level of profit at that point is not as important as the protected niche and, and market that you offer to someone else. If you have you know, catering contracts with somebody who they think would be of more value to them, then your business is worth more to them than it is to you. And this way of thinking is kind of key. And then, and then there's your asymmetrical strategic buyer, which I'll go into a little more later, but that is the people who aren't really restaurant buyers, don't know they're restaurant buyers, but who need the restaurant more than you do or anyone else does. And that's kind of key in this economy. It sure is. Thank you so much for that. Listeners, believe it or not, it's time for us to take our two-minute break. And when we come back, Dan and I are going to talk about some of the challenges that you face when you go to sell your business and choosing your buyer. In the meantime, I want to encourage you to download the show notes and our app. Take advantage of these, these resources that you have. I'm Wendy Dickinson with Catalytic Conversations, and we'll be back in just two minutes. exist and why do your customers care if you're not sure we can help at crispin co we work closely with you to get to know your business together we'll build a strategy that communicates your brand message to the people who need to know it your customers crispin co exists to challenge normal we're a full service creative design and media agency. We trade in innovative ideas, creative content and strategic communication that gets maximum results and return on your marketing investment. Find us at crispand.co or on all the usual socials. Crisp and Co. Innovate. Create. Communicate. Nothing's good that uses bad. 
This is William Eastman, Managing Partner for GrowthWorks Media and Station Director for IBGR. One of my jobs is finding great on-air talent, consultants and business owners with presence and a story to tell. We're expanding our broadcast team to represent our four core time zones, North America, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and the Philippines, the India subcontinent, and the last of four, United Kingdom, Ireland, Europe, and Africa. If you are a small business consultant or business owner and would like to audition for an on-air slot in our six-hour show cycle, contact the station director, and that is at programming at btr.network. We will respond to your email within one business day. Thanks for listening, and don't miss this great opportunity to put the world back to work and grow with us. Thanks. host Wendy Dickinson of Ascend Coaching Solutions, your business growth expert on the number one global business talk and news radio network, IBGR, International Business Growth Radio. Hey, if you're ready to dive into the challenges that owners faced when they have decided to sell the business and are ready to start that marathon, then this is the show for you. This is episode number 12 in choosing a buyer for your business here with our expert, Dan Sherrader of Filament Business Advisors. I'm going to remind you again, go to the app, get the show notes, people. That's what they're there for. Okay, Dan, you and I were talking before when we were setting up this interview, and I asked you, in your opinion, did you run into owners who get in their own way, who, number one, don't know what they want from the sale of their business, and then, because of that, sabotage the process. And I'd, I'd love to know any experiences, whether you agree, not agree, that sort of thing. Well, of course I agree. Um, the, the most obvious way that they sabotage the process is, like you said, they don't know what they want or what they want is unrealistic. Yes. Uh, given, given the way they currently operate. So if they know what they want, then they can say, uh, you know, I want X. And then we can say, well, if you want X, your business is currently worth less than X. You're going to have to do the following things. And it's going to, you have to do it over a few years so you can show the growth. Because an owner wants to see that. They want to see income and they want to see growth. Like you said, you got to put yourself in the buyer's shoes. Uh, but there's a lot of other obvious ways that owners screw themselves. Uh most obvious is the financials. Mm-hmm. So you operate a business, and we all get this. Uh, you want to pay as low a taxes as possible. Yes. And so you do everything you can with your expenses to not declare any income or even declare a loss, even if your business is doing fine. Well, uh, obviously, buyers don't want to see that. And you can rejigger the P&Ls and show how you added these things back in. But if you're not accounting for the stakes you take home, and you're not accounting for the expenses and whatnot that you have in order to show that loss, then 
you're operating a nonprofit that's not selling. So if you're, if you're getting to the point where you want to sell the business, you have to pay taxes. You have to show it in your, or at least account for it so that people can see what their actual seller's discretionary income, SDI, is. If they can't see it, then it isn't there. Another thing is the lease. The lease. When you talk to owners, they want to run out the lease and then talk about selling. But honestly, who would want to buy a business that has no lease? Exactly. Very simple things. Yeah, and you know, I've also run into people who wanted to keep the name of the business, wanted the new buyer to keep the name of the business. I've run into people who wanted the new buyer to keep the business in the same town in some situations. I've run into sellers who wanted the buyer to keep all of their employees. You know, these are things that you as an an intermediary have to know ahead of time. And and I don't think people understand that. Well, there's, there's ego involved. I mean, yeah. they don't want to be embarrassed on the golf course because right. something their, their favorite sandwich has disappeared or something <laughs> like that. Right. And, and the reality is that, you know, if you're going to put your ego and your, your legacy uh, in the sale, then it's going to be worth less. Right. Remember, the buyer may be buying that goodwill and that legacy, uh, but they're probably not. They probably want to make money on the business. And, and if you have an employee who you love, but who is not worth it to the buyer, you're going to have to let that go. That is not your problem. Now, a lot of buyers are like that, or a lot of sellers are like that, and you have to you know, try to persuade them out of that and look at it as a business. Mm-hmm. But they don't. They look at it as their life's work, and that's different. So if you can start looking at it as a business and, and start looking at, at everything from the buyer's perspective, then you have a better chance of getting more what you want. And I have to say that as a coach, what I do is try to work with my clients to create this ecosystem with their employees of kind of readiness and resilience, right? So you cross-train people, you prepare them for change, you make sure that their skills are up to date, so that then it's a, it, it isn't as difficult a situation as if somebody that your dad hired 30 years ago who refuses to use the internet, you're keeping on basically as a charity case, and you're expecting that buyer to pay that person too. Well, even even worse than that is having an org chart that is not easily assumable right. by someone else. So it, the, the typical business owner, typical restaurateur, for example, who believes that the business revolves around them because it does and they designed it that way. Mm-hmm. And no one else can see themselves stepping in unless you have set up an organizational chart and, and management and whatnot that know what they're doing and that the buyer can see themselves taking over the business and not having to be handheld for years by the the person whose name is on the door. Okay, two things occur yeah, two things occur to me when I hear you say that. So let's let's set it up for our listeners so that they can determine how much we're talking when it costs when we say it costs them. So a, a business, an organization that's set up as you just described around the owner versus the value of that that business with the same number of sales and customers and yada yada that the business is not set up around the owner what's the differentiation as far as value is concerned or purchase price well um that's it's a hard question to answer yeah it is because that's just Uh, but but let's go into it so uh, you're only about 2% of businesses in America sell at all. Right. And those that do sell leave typically, the industry numbers are like 40% of the value on the table. So I would say that the businesses that don't sell 
are ones that frequently are not viable because they are the owner. Yeah. And the owner has not bothered to bring on a protege, an heir apparent, or put in place management and key people to do those things. So a buyer's going to look at it and say, yeah, but if this guy leaves, I can't, you know, it totally depends on them. You know, mm-hmm. you you need, I, I love in a lot of industries to bring in the protege who could become a buyer. Right, could, that's right. Who is a potential buyer, let's be honest. Exactly. I one of those, and I brought in one of those. But the protege model works because, you know, you're bringing someone in and up in the business, they, they meet all the clients, they know all the employees, they're able to do the job and allow you to do more of what you want to do, whether that's promoting sales or playing golf or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, then if you have that key person, if you have that protege, that's a potential buyer right there. But even if it's not a potential buyer, that person guarantees to someone who does buy it that, oh, well, there is qualified management in place and I can move in there and operate it from my laptop. Yeah. Okay. So by any chance, do you have any stories or real life examples that you could share with our listeners while maintaining your client's confidentiality, of course, but about that yeah or any other way that business owners have have any other way that they sabotage themselves yes well what you see frequently and the restaurant business is a glaring example is that a lot of people who came up in it it's the family business whatever they continue to do things the way dad taught them to right and you know a couple of things have changed since 1958 and because dad didn't have to change, didn't want to change, and he was fine doing it the old-fashioned way, doesn't mean that's going to work from now on. It doesn't mean it's working now. Right. 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 Um, and and you know, people will, if they're continuing to operate the business because they're seeing themselves exiting, the last thing they should do is let it show. They should be remodeling. They should be replacing aging equipment. They should be adding value, even though that costs money, understood. Right. But you're, if you're, you know, riding on all old, fully depreciated equipment and you haven't, you know, put any paint on the walls, you haven't done any marketing, you have no social media profile, you've done all these, you've not done all of these things that are now required of businesses, whether they're restaurants or building trades or, or tech or services, and any of those industries need all those things. And if you're continuing to not do those things because, bah, well, I don't understand that. I, I don't, you need to hire people who do. Yeah. So those, we see that a lot. Uh, or we see owners who, you know, small firms. I talked to an architect the other day who, uh, you know, he, he only takes the work he wants to take and only based on uh, people he wants to work with that he doesn't want to deal with the hassles of people who are difficult or challenging. And frankly, he doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that just business is flat for years. It doesn't generate enough income to become to be really a strategic purchase. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so you know, and, and if it's totally reliant on him, who who wants that? So his option we talked about is he needs to find the protege. He needs to bring in someone initially as an employee and then as a partner, whose goal is to buy him out. And they can gradually put two names on the door and uh, exchange clients and, and, and start building a, a, a partnership together that he has clear plans to exit. And, and that, but that needs to happen. Otherwise, he can run out the lease and give the landlord back the keys and walk away. Then right. He's got right, right. 
So you got to spend a little money. You got to spend a little time to set it up to sell because it's not a house, right? It's a business. So how about the thought process that goes into choosing what I consider a, an ideal buyer? I mean, do you have a process for working with people? And I know we've got to take our break very shortly. So let's maybe give a little hint of that to well, lead us in. Ask, you know, there's, there's pitfalls in the various categories of buyers, right? There's yeah. pitfalls, protege, you know, in a lot of cases, you might want to look at selling to competition. Right, right. right. You're an electrical supply store, sell to another electrical supply store. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, deals don't always go through. And if you share a bunch of confidential information with your competitor, it's really hard to prove that he violated the NDA and use that information against you. Um, and, and it might be too late. Right. You lose the ability to get that business moving. So you need to really evaluate who you're going after. Mm-hmm. And, and it might be, if it's a strategic buyer, you're probably going to isolate, you know, a few firms that fit the category for whom you would be a good strategic purchase. And then you really have to do sales networking 101 to get in there and talk to those people and, you know, convince them that this is, this is where they need to go. Listeners, it's time for a break. When we come back, Dan and I are going to discuss more about what you need to know in choosing a buyer when you go to sell your business. It's Wendy Dickinson with Catalytic Conversations, and we'll be right back. business grow? When surveyed, about 90% of business leaders admit that their CRM isn't. The most common cause for that? Salespeople don't use their CRM the way they should. Why not? Well, it takes them too much time and discipline to fill out their CRM completely. And if salespeople don't, the CRM system becomes useless. That's why when we started Salesware, we asked ourselves, what if we build a CRM system that fills out itself? What if we build a system that surfaces existing data so that you know and remember all about your customers and never forget and disappoint another lead? That's what Salesforce does today. It pulls in all the data buried in your emails, email signatures, calendar, phone, social data, company database, email and web tracking, and offers it to you in an easy way so you and your CRM are always up to date. Want to see this for yourself? Head to salesforce.com and get your free trial. This is William Eastman, managing partner for GrowthWorks Media and station director at IBTR. If you listen to any of our broadcasts, you know we consider all entrepreneurs part of one family. People who are the heroes of our societies because they put their soul into the game and risk failure for everybody else. We want to meet and get to know everyone, like having a family reunion. Plus, to provide the highest quality of programming, we need to hear from you. The place to start is to become a subscriber. Every week we will send you our broadcasting schedule, links to show notes, and occasionally a gift like something practical from our toolbox. It is simple to do. Go to our Join Us page, sign up, and become part of the most important global community, entrepreneurs. Never forget, we create over 50% of the jobs around the world. We look forward to meeting you. Thank you.
we're back. You are listening to Catalytic Conversations on the number one global business talk and news network, IBGR, International Business Growth Radio. I'm your Catalytic Conversations host, Wendy Dickinson, here with Dan Schroeder of Filament Business Advisors. This is episode number 12 in season four, and we're talking about selling your business. I encourage you to go to our website, ibgr.network, and download the show notes. Dan, I'd love for our listeners to get a sense of what your process is like. If somebody's ready to sell their business and they they give you a call, what happens from there? So uh, we we have a meeting um, and we talk about the business, what they they want to do, what their plan is. Hopefully they have an exit strategy, but they usually don't. But they'd like to get out. Hopefully, they want to get out in like three to five years. Okay, that's that's your ideal seller in a lot of ways. Um, well, the ideal seller has a perfectly run business with management in place and great financials and hockey stick growth, and they're selling at the peak of their game. But that that seller rarely exists. Yeah. So, so in a, ideally, they don't have to sell it right now because that's kind of a bad sign. So let's get to the seller who has time to work on the business. Right. Filament, my firm, is a consulting firm, small business consulting firm, the only accredited one in Richmond and one of only seven in Virginia. And uh, I run the brokerage part of it, but the brokerage part of it grew out of consulting needs. And what the consulting wing does is it uh, takes over as a fractional C-suite for owners Mm -hmm. who do not excel at being a CFO or a CTO or a CIO or whatever, and they need but they can't afford to hire a full-time person to do that. So they hire us, and, and that's frequently in term in equity. Um, they'll hire us to come in and take over the business part of their business to free them to do sales, ideally, and whatever the chief function of the business is. They're a roofer, they're putting up roofs, mm-hmm. and they're selling more roofs, um, as opposed to trying to figure out QuickBooks and deal with the bank loan and everything like that. So the brokerage part, obviously is there to sell businesses for those people, the businesses we've built. But also what we found is that a lot of the businesses aren't ready to sell. They haven't, they don't have their books together. If they just come to us to sell, their books aren't together. They're, they're not experiencing the growth they need. They don't have a social media presence or even a website. They just use a Facebook page, stuff like that. Right. And so what we do is we say, well, right now your business isn't worth much. So what we, what we would like to do if you want to sell it, we think you could sell it for much more than nothing uh, if you spend some time with us building it out the way it should be. Just, just like when you stage your house for sale, mm-hmm. by the time it's done being staged, it looks better than it ever did when you lived in it. Right. Just like that. So <laughs> we need to, I know that because we did the same thing, um, but we made a lot more on the sale of our house when we did that. So the idea here is that we want to stage their house for sale and take, you know, it might be six months, it might be three years to really get it to the point where a buyer can see it as a great opportunity and where everything's in line, the lease, the financials, the, the management, uh, the, the org chart, that, that a, the, the right buyer, be they financial or, or strategic, could come in and see themselves coming in and operating the business. So in that way, the consulting wing and the, the brokerage wing, kind of wing work hand in glove together to put the meat on the bone to make the business sellable. What's your geographic reach? Well, we focus on Central Virginia, Richmond, and, and, and 
uh, to, up to the mountains and, and to the beach, but we really focus around the Richmond area. That being said, uh, uh, we've done business as far west as Idaho uh, and throughout the southeast. So mm-hmm. it, the consulting stuff is much easier to do when you're in person. The brokerage stuff, you can kind of do anywhere, um, but it's better if you're hands-on when we're very high touch, low volume. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a differentiating uh, principle of our firm is that, you know, many of the more transactional business brokers, you know, they'll, they'll generate a broker's opinion of value, they'll create a listing, they'll post it on biz buy sell, and that's about as effective as a job ad on, on you know, Indeed, right? It, it doesn't work. There's not a lot of, those jet brokers basically get listings by having listings. And, you know, yeah, you have to have that listing, but that's not going to sell the business in most cases. Those things sit and you can watch them. You can watch them sit. It's not Zillow. Right. So we believe the high touch method uh, works far better for businesses because they're much more complicated than, than, you know, Cape Cod's in a, in a nice suburban neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, one of the things that's, that I hear in what you're saying is something that, that I work with my clients on quite a bit, and that is there is no shame in asking for help. I wish more people would get that message. I think so many, especially smaller business owners, live in their own little bubble. Yep. And, you know, the story they tell the public is... They're Barnum and Bailey, right? Everything's great. We got to do this. We got to do that. Everything's fabulous. They go home to their spouse and, oh, God, the health inspector showed up and I can't afford, I can't, I'm not going to make payroll. And they, they go through all their hassles. But they're, they're all, I think, afraid to ask for help because they always view it as, oh, my God, that'll cost me money. Well, yeah, certainly. You know, the, my dad, who was a defense attorney, used to say that the only thing more expensive than a good lawyer is a cheap lawyer. Oh, my and, gosh, yes. That's true. <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> That's you, so true. There's certain things you kind of want to spend money on. And, you know, if, if your business has any potential value, then you're going to want to have someone who knows more than you do to help you get it there. Yeah. And, you know, as, as payment, we usually opt for equity or percentage mm-hmm. uh, equity in, in consulting or a percentage of the sale mm-hmm. because you know our success your success is our success right we want to build it because we want to make more money too right and so it's not as though uh, the, the, the stereotypical consultant that takes your watch tells you what time it is and sends you a bill is not the model that we're operating on we take ownership of what we do we work with you in the business and we intend to profit from it one of the biggest dangers, I think, of that, that internal narrative that you were just talking about is the either-or thinking, right? Either things are, you know, I've got to do this or that, or I'm doing this or the other. And the reality is, is that what you're talking about is there is another way to get the help that you need. Yes, you're going to spend some money at some point, but you know this this offering of equity as well as any kind of retainer or whatever there are other ways to do this and to make it happen but it does take time it's not something that an owner can say oh i would like to sell a month from now when my lease runs out as you were talking about in the last segment that won't happen because right business sales take typically 
six months to a year. Yeah. There, there's no one selling it in one month unless you're just going to lowball offer. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, anyone will take it because they can't lose. But that's what's the point of doing that? So, yeah, yeah you have to you have to uh, find the right people. And I think that our equity or profit sharing models uh, work because you're not paying up front. You're you're bringing people in to partner with you to be the the CFO that you can't afford. Right. And, and I'm going to say this as well. Listeners, you've heard me say this before. This is not a DIY process. This is something that you want someone who makes this their profession to be involved in. Right, right. Or just someone who asks you questions that none of the people who work for you ask. Don't. It's amazing because that doesn't happen. You have a lot of owners who are imperial. They don't permit questions. They don't ask themselves questions. They don't ask themselves at all. Oh my gosh, you're so right. And that's just, that's crazy. So it sounds like we've got some interference here. Thank you. I think Bill is trying to get in on the call. He is. He must be excited to join us, but he's not. We don't want that to happen. So what I really want us to, to share maybe are a couple of examples to give listeners the the sense of what we're talking about we one of the the examples that i'll share dan is that i um know of a, a guy who was um in charge of a third generation family business he knew that he was going to want to sell the business. Nobody else in the family was interested in in taking this over when he was ready to retire. And he knew that that was going to happen sometime in the next 10 years. So he actually laid out a plan where he also had a big CapEx expense that he knew they needed to be made, going back to your point about outdated equipment. And so he did that. And what he did was he, again, hired the right people. He had an M&A attorney. He had an investment banker, a broker. He had the people that he needed on his team. And he went and pursued a financial buyer initially to get that capital infusion that he needed, knowing that. And then he, he was a minority reinvestor. And so then he knew that they would sell in the next five to seven years. He was someone who wanted to keep the name, wanted it to stay in the town, wanted the people he employed to stay there, and they made that happen. Amazing. But he put about 12 years into making it happen. Well, yeah, if you plan for it, it it might actually happen. So uh, the, the problem is that many times they don't plan, and many of our clients, uh, the, the unsuccessful engagements, they, the, they're attracted by bright, shiny objects. <laughs> yeah. And they, they like the part of the business that they like, not the part that is profitable. We had a, a robotic company that's potentially a huge business, but it is being run into the ground by the owner oh who is gosh. doubling down on the least profitable part of the business and ignoring the most profitable part of the business because he doesn't like it as much. Oh, wow. No good reason for it. So you know, we, we can't we can't work like that because part of you know unfortunately part of being a consultant is yeah you can only give your opinion. That's right? so true, listeners. Believe it or not, it's time for Dan and I to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to go into some of the specifics of what we think you should do. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
listen to any of our broadcasts, you know we consider all entrepreneurs part of one family. People who are the heroes of our societies because they put their soul into the game and risk failure for everybody else. We want to meet and get to know everyone, like having a family reunion. Plus, to provide the highest quality of programming, we need to hear from you. The place to start is to become a subscriber. Every week we will send you our broadcasting schedule, links to show notes, and occasionally a gift like something practical from our toolbox. It is simple to do. Go to our Join Us page, sign up, and become part of the most important global community, entrepreneurs. Never forget, we create over 50% of the jobs around the world. We look forward to meeting you. Nothing's good, the news is bad. This is William Eastman, managing partner for GrowthWorks Media and station director for IBGR. One of my jobs is finding great on-air talent, consultants and business owners with presence and a story to tell. We're expanding our broadcast team to represent our four core time zones, North America, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and the Philippines, the India subcontinent, and the last of four, United Kingdom, Ireland, Europe and Africa. If you are a small business consultant or business owner and would like to audition for an on-air slot in our six-hour show cycle, contact the station director, and that is at programming at btr.network. We will respond to your email within one business day. Thanks for listening, and don't miss this great opportunity to put the world back to work and grow with us. Thanks. I'm Wendy Dickinson, your Catalytic Conversations host, and this is our last segment of the 12th show in our fourth season, and I'm here with our restaurant expert and business broker, Dan Schrotter of Filament Business Advisors. And today, you have a chance to get an expert's view on choosing a buyer for your business, and if you happen to be in the restaurant industry, well, then you're really in luck because that's, that's Dan's area of expertise among others. So if this brings up questions to you, you can reach out to me or to Dan. I encourage you to download the show notes for our contact information. All right, Dan, so give us a couple of stories, a couple of examples of businesses that you've worked with. Well, how about a restaurant, a small restaurant whose owner would like to just sell it himself? Oh, 
Okay. <laughs> I, I imagine I imagine my dad's horror and, and someone representing himself in court, and it's about the same. Or someone trying to sell their own house, same thing. Yeah. But you know, this this kind of thing does happen, and we inevitably we can we can only have the conversation about. So you want to be vetting buyers? You want to be vetting restaurant buyers in this economy, and you want to be doing that right when your lease is running out. Do you? You think you'll get much for it? Well, I did when I bought it for fifty grand, uh, you know, fifteen years ago. So, well, the world's changed a little bit. You might need to think about that, right? This is not uncommon. This was a week ago. Oh gosh, this is a horror story. Right? right? Yeah. But, but what'll happen? We know what'll happen. Yeah. He'll he'll, he'll reach out to his non-network because he spends all day in a restaurant, right? Uh, to see who wants to buy what he has and the answer there there's a perfect buyer for him but it's a strategic buyer who wants his location and there's no way of him knowing who that is Mm -hmm. he doesn't he doesn't deal with these people on a regular basis and he doesn't realize what it's worth so he's going to sell it for way less than he could get for it Mm -hmm. because he doesn't want to pay the commission right Uh, he doesn't know he can sell it at all i doubt you can sell something without a lease i agree you know, he, he says the landlords are very, are very amenable. They're fine. They'll, they'll, they'll do whatever. Like, yeah, sure they will. But, but you're not going to sell anything. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. You know, they'll, they'll just lease it to someone else. Um, so you know that that kind of thing happens on a regular basis. Mm. Restaurant owners, in particular, uh, are they don't realize that that right now and for the foreseeable future, that their business is worth nothing to a financial buyer. Right. It is worth something to the right landlord. And this is what I was talking to about asymmetrical buyers. Think about, let's say you have a restaurant in a in an office tower. Mm-hmm. In an office tower that is currently 20% vacant where uh, in terms of lease, and then the, the actual working population is a fraction of what it used to be. If you're the if you're the building owner then really you need a compelling food and beverage as an amenity downstairs. This is how all casinos think about it. This is how all hotels think about it. This is how anywhere else that serves food and beverage thinks about food and beverage. It's an amenity to add value to the rest of the property and the rest of the experience. None of them really try to make any money on it. They do try to keep the money in the casino, but really they're offering all the restaurants to get the people to come in the first place. And to get them to spend their, if they ever win gambling, to keep that money in the casino. Right. And hopefully they make money if they're really well done. But but think about this model. Why would a restaurateur right now or, or anytime in the near future put down a personal guarantee and a lease and money to build out a restaurant space that's worth nothing to him? Now, the office building owner, they should be paying. They're the asymmetrical buyer that they're unaware of that fact, but they should be paying the money to build out a restaurant and find an operator. That's what they need to be looking for. People shouldn't be thinking about going into the restaurant business. They should be going into restaurant operations and convincing that asymmetrical buyer to build out the restaurant. Okay. Say that again, because that's so important. The restaurant is worth nothing to the owner. If the owner is the operator of the restaurant. The restaurant is worth something to the landlord that has 100,000 square feet of office space upstairs because that's the draw. 
what, how are you going to get a law firm to move to Manchester, for example, if there's no place to do business lunch, if there's no place to get coffee downstairs, if there's no place to get happy hour after work drinks, if there's no place to have a board meeting in a private room? If that doesn't exist, you're not going to get a law firm. You might get a design firm with a bunch of creatives in t-shirts, and that's fine because they like food trucks. But if you're going after... If you're going after the crowd that wants and needs a business lunch, then you need to offer that. And that's only going to be between a great deal between an operator and the landlord. And really the way that looks right now is the landlord does all the TI at the bare minimum, if not own the restaurant itself. So that's a great deal. And it's a great deal for the landlord because suddenly they can charge more per square foot upstairs where they make their real money and stop looking at the 5,000 feet downstairs as, as anything. That's eye candy, that's marketing, that's how they should look at that restaurant. So, you know, we're constantly dealing with, say when, we, when I work with uh, building owners and developers, they don't wanna be in the restaurant business and they wanna make money on the restaurant space. I'm like, nope, that's your loss leader. It's a loss leader even if you do lease it out because any idiot who takes that space in this economy is going to be closed in five years right. if you look at the numbers. Yeah. So and you'll be doing this whole thing again. You'll be empty again. You won't have a service again. And you'll be putting in TI again. Your place will never cash flow. And they know this. Right. They know this, but they're not willing to change their business model any more than the old school restaurateur is willing to change their operational model. But in the economy we're at, restaurants as a service is the way things are headed. And that's the way they need to think about it. And everyone can send Dan a check because that information is worth so much, so very much to every restaurant owner. I hope that's a value, but knowing what your thing is worth yeah. is important. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's key. Okay, how about and, another? And to whom? And to whom? Yes, and what it's worth and to whom, exactly. So, another story. What's another example? Another example of finding a good buyer? Yeah. Well, I think my own. I, I, I told you briefly, but I took a kid who I identified as having talent, uh, stole him actually from his dad's restaurant. <laughs> Love that. Where his dad was the chef and he was operating as the bartender, maitre d', waiter, and whatnot. And I, I hired him away to be my night manager. And then I fired his boss and promoted him and he wanted in and I was ready to go out and so we made that deal. Mm. That took years of courting and development and effort uh, and it, but also it made him the perfect buyer. Okay, how long? What, I mean, it's, it, you know, that's, this is like the chapter in a book where it says the hero struggled for 10 years and then it goes on to the happy stuff. Tell us, how many years, what type of effort? Well, I had to hire him away from his dad, Sicilian, so that was already a challenge. Um, and but his dad was said, "Yeah, yeah, go downtown. That's good for you. I'm I'm too old. I don't I don't want to go downtown." So I, I got him downtown. Um, I had I was at the time I was the president of the restaurant association, and we had awarded this kid uh, a scholarship for to finish up paying for uh, hotelier uh, uh, hospitality school. He'd done. City College undergraduate in, in hotel and restaurant and then got a business degree from USF 
uh, furthermore, and he was, so it was great, hardworking, like everything you want, ambitious, loved the industry, knew the industry, grew up in the industry. So I identified him as the guy I want. This would have been in 2007, 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, stolen from his you know, dad's restaurant out in the avenues and brought him downtown. And uh, then, again, had to train him on everything, on management, had to, you know, nobody trains restaurant managers at all in dealing with people. So I had to do that. Um, understood the food, but he was really good with the wine and the customers. Whole thing got him out of there, but then you know when 08 hit, I fired his boss, I promoted him, I doubled his hours, and he was he was fine with that. I increased his salary a little bit, not much, um, but then we started talking about this next step, and he wanted to buy in, and sure enough, you know we we made that happen, and so that way it was a very easy transition uh, in terms of legal money, people, finance. Nobody was surprised. No customers blinked. No employees blinked. I mean, they, they guess maybe they missed me a little bit, but no one left, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I made sure that his kitchen, my, my, I developed my sous chef team so they could operate without me as a, as a chef head. Uh, they were they were totally out of my, all the recipes were down. I, there was nothing that I was needed for other than maybe moral authority or, you know, whatever, hugging. Uh, and so which you can't do anymore anyway. Right. <laughs> so when I, when I announced I was leaving, yes, people were surprised, but it wasn't an end of the world, and it was a great thing for the person who worked his way up to it. So that was a win. That is an amazing story. And so thank you for going into greater detail about that. You know, Dan, I feel like the listeners today have gotten so many valuable pieces of information, everything from what the possibilities are around asymptomatic asymmetrical buyers. I told you I was going to have trouble with that. Oh my gosh, one of those days. Asymmetrical buyers, as well as looking at different aspects of what the buyer, what the seller needs, wants, and who might want, who might be willing to pay for what they have, and different ways to go about it. So Dan, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would you like to be contacted? Um, You could contact me via email, which is dan at filamentbusinessadvisors.com, or on my cell phone, which is a 415-572-1969. Go to our Filament website, Filament Business Advisors website. I'm on that. Um, I think the key would be whether you want me and my high-touch system or or you don't need that. The reality is if you're going to sell your business, you need to contact someone to help you do it because... The way you think is probably not oriented towards selling your business. It's probably oriented toward operating your business, hopefully. <laughs> so yeah. by all means, at least, at least call and talk to someone like me so that you can get a hint in, 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 as to you know, where to move forward. And please engage someone who's qualified uh, in wherever you are uh, to do that kind of work for you. And if you need a referral to somewhere else, we, we're part of a big network. Uh, and we can refer to uh, to other brokers in other places. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. And listeners, this is Wendy Dickinson, your Catalytic Conversations host, signing off 